0: Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up BFW show where we hit on all of the latest and greatest news of the week. It was another great week for Bayern Munich. That's a good trend for everyone, I think. Uh, Bayern had a couple of big wins, first over Hoffenheim, and then second, the big one in the Champions League over FC Barcelona. Barça was already dead heading into the match, as they saw Uh, when Inter Milan put away Victoria Pilsen. So Barca had no motivation. They played like they had no motivation for the majority of the match, but we will dive into that in a little bit. Uh, I have to say I was really thrilled to see the results this week, to see how the team played, and then also to be able to discuss a lot of these events that happened over the course of the week, a lot of these stories uh, with some of the other BFW writers. And uh, we had a lot of good banter back and forth, a lot of good communication. So why don't we get right two things this week? And we'll start with the five things that we learned this week. And the first is that Bayern Munich's form is ever improving. And what I mean by that is this team at times of the first couple of months of the season here has been up and down. And obviously we we know that because we saw some really unfortunate results Uh, We saw some late games, frankly, choked away with stupid plays. We saw some mismanagement of players and substitutions. We saw some poor performances from players, some really poor decisions. It it hasn't been perfect by any means. But what we have seen in recent weeks is that the team is steadily improving. They're fighting through injuries and illnesses. They're, They're really showing a lot of fortitude, a lot of perseverance, a lot of resilience in how some of the bench players are stepping up, how they're getting through these injuries, and and even regular starters are really raising their own level of play. It has been impressive to see. And I think part of it, you know, the credit goes to Julian Nagelsmann for recognizing that some things needed to change, that some players are performing better than others, uh, that just some things work better than, than, than other things too at this point. Uh, We know that Nagelsmann is a tinkerer. We know that he loves to move players around to shift formations, but he is starting to settle into a groove. And with the current crop of players that have been available, and admittedly there have been some players coming in and other players going out. So it's been a nice little balance of, of uh, roster movement where he hasn't had to deal too often with having that full brunt of the roster available. So what he's been able to do is shift players around, lean on players like Eric Maxim, Chupo Moting to come up and play a role. When it looked like he was going to be so buried on the bench this season, we might not see him barely at all. Now it seems like he's a focal point in the offense. So, uh, you know, Nagelsmann is pushing the right buttons. Can he continue to do this as the players get more healthy, as that roster starts to show its true self and we get the full brunt of it all of that talent being available all of the time how will he how will he how will he be able to work through all of that and that that is going to be key moving forward but i think when we look at how the team has progressed and we look how players are developing and they're starting to round in form this is a very, very good thing for Bayern Munich. The fact that they can go and they can play Hoffenheim, who, listen, you can say what you want about the competition in Bundesliga. Hoffenheim has been very good this season. And the and Bayern was able to go in and have a very effective game and win that match. Bayern, in a match that meant nothing to them, really, against Barcelona, and, and honestly, it meant nothing to Barca either, Bayern still kept the mentality to go in and crush a giant. And that's what you have to love. Now, giant giant is a relative term these days. Bayern itself, of course, is a giant (laughs) in the world of football. But to go into Camp Nou, to play FC Barcelona, and to stomp them out and to rip their heart out, uh, that's a commendable thing, regardless of the result that happened earlier that day. I was impressed by Bayern Munich. I I liked what I saw this week. And I think that we are seeing improving performances. We're seeing players step up. We're seeing a a a Joshua Kimmich that looks a lot better than he did last season. We're seeing Leon Goretzka rounding in the form. We're seeing Mat- Matthijs delict rounding in the form. We're seeing a much improved Diogo Macano. We are probably seeing the best of Leroy Sané when he's been healthy this season. We're seeing a very good Serge Gnabry. Uh, we are we're getting a lot of good performances we're getting a lot of consistent performances from a lot of players who who quite frankly had been up and down or that were maybe off a little bit last season. I mean you can look at Benjamin Pavard and how he's done. He has absolutely been one of the best right backs in Europe this season. And he is a player that has is was much maligned last season. A lot of Bayern fans wanted him gone. They were already anointing Cesar's rally as the Starting right back. And now Ms. Rowley really can't break through Pavar on a consistent basis. I mean, it's even that particular situation, it's good to see that Ms. Rowley is getting some time, that Nagelsmann is knowing when to hold Pavar back, when to get him some rest, and and, and giving Ms. Rowley enough time to keep him relatively happy. Uh, you know, we've talked about Ryan Gravenberg's situation a million times on this show and how he's not happy, but when when the squad is playing this well, and by all accounts, the boys are all getting along, even those bits of unhappiness that that might be able to seep in and ruin things on a lesser team are going to get stomped out, snuffed out by the team leaders and just by the overall success that the team is having. When things are going well and everyone's rolling, People get on the same page and those gripes that people have that might be loud at one point tend to get a little bit more quiet. So I'm impressed with what Byron's doing. I know not everyone is a huge fan of Nogglesman. I go back and forth on him. I, I still like him. I still think he's got some great ideas. I don't think he's perfect by any means. He's certainly not Hansi Flick in my book, but I, I do like him. I'm still on the pro nogglesman side of things. Uh, I do get why there's frustration, but he's got the squad playing well. He's got the players improving, and that's the most important thing at this stage of the season, particularly with the World Cup coming up this winter. And, and we all know how that is going to just throw a complete wrench into everything. But that will be a topic for another day on this show. The second thing we learned this week is that Matthijs De is really – he's showing exactly why – He's he's such a good player. I mean, we're learning that this guy has been able to get himself into shape and it, how he has been starting to show the type of player he is. Now, up to this point in the season with DeLict, I don't think we've always seen the best of him. We saw that silly foul late in the game, uh, which cost Byron a couple of points there when he took them from a, a win to a draw. We haven't seen him always be super consistent. He hasn't been bad by any means, but I think over the last couple of weeks, much like the team itself, the Licht has improved. He's gotten better. And I think we're all seeing that talent that he has. Now, anyone defending Robert Lewandowski can tell you it is no easy task. He is considered one of the toughest matchups in Europe just because he can score any which way. He moves... The way he moves on the pitch, the, the way he thinks about the game, the way he sees the game, he's always able to create offense for himself and others. Uh, DeLict turned in just a magnificent performance against against Lewandowski in the Champions League this week. And I think that that was really the breakthrough for him at Bayern Munich. Now, this is not a guy that necessarily needs a breakthrough. He has been anointed as this great center back since the time He was in his teens. He came out with Ajax, went to Juventus, and he has been on this journey ever since of working to get better, working to improve himself, working to absorb all of this knowledge that he's getting from other teammates and coaches that he's been around. And DeLict has, he's really become this player to me that has the potential to be a foundational center back at Bayern Munich, to be a a foundational team leader and, And I'm not just saying that because he started to work out on Goretzka, and he looks like he's probably going to go down the Goretzka the road of getting jacked. So, I mean, I'm sure this hulked up the lick that we're going to see within a few months is, is probably going to look even different than what we're seeing now. But I do think this is a guy who has all of the traits that you want in a modern day center back. I think he's got the size. He's got relatively good speed. He's smart. He makes good passes. He communicates well on the field. He clearly has the respect of his teammates. He knows when to pull teammates back, when to push them on. I think he he has everything you want, all of those intangibles. Physically, he's got all of those tools. And I think now he's starting to string together those performances that we've all been waiting to see since he joined the club. And I do think there were some people that were maybe a little bit down on him earlier in the season because, quite frankly, he wasn't that great. He wasn't bad. He wasn't even average most of the time. He was better than that, but it wasn't this really standout center back that I think everyone wanted to see. But now we're getting it. And what the fascinating part of all this will be what happens when you have Delict playing at this excellent level? You have Upa McConnell who has made, he's improved by leaps and bounds himself this season. He's made great strides. And then you bring Luca Hernandez back into the mix, a player with a completely different skill set than Upa Makano or Delict. What you have are three great options for Julian Nagelsmann at center back, and the way that those players can be used and how Nagelsmann is going to be able to look at individual teams and look at matchups and say, all right, well, the combination of Hernandez and Delict will work better against so-and-so, or this particular match might need Upamakano and Hernandez or Upamecano and Delict. Knucklesman is going to have all of those options, those options that he loves, the options that allow him to tinker and look at individual matchups and, and look at strategies and develop the best way to stop his opponents. He's got three terrific options and De Ligt continuing to improve, continuing to see his game and potentially his physique evolve. I think this is all great stuff for Bayern Munich. I'm really psyched up about what I've seen about the Ligt how I've seen him get better. And just the kid has a great attitude in my, in my mind. And and that's a, I think it's a really positive thing that can get overlooked. He he's, you know, like any high priced, big ego transfer, he, he could have sulked when he wasn't playing right away. He could have been in denial about not being in the best or not having the best fitness because of whatever the hell they do at juventus in their training he could have he could have developed an attitude about that but he hasn't he's kept working he's kept on the grind he's looking for ways to get better all the time and if you're a bayern fan you have to love seeing that and if his performances keep getting better and he keeps showing that he's going to be the type of player that i think he he can be i think that bayern fans are absolutely going to start embracing him more and start getting behind him And really throwing their support his way, because I think it's kind of been back and forth so far. Uh, I think that some people have been in on him from the get-go. Some have been hesitant. Some even, you know, have said they don't see what Bayern sees in him. But I, I do. I think he's going to be a terrific player at Bayern Munich, and I think that he's now starting to show the fans that he can consistently do the job. The third thing that I learned this week is something that comes up quite often, among all Bayern fans, in that I think that a move back to the four-two-three-one is, is pretty inevitable. I'm not saying it's going to happen this season. Uh, it might. I mean, we've seen it a lot of late, but I do think whether it happens now or in a couple of months or even for the next season in 2023-2024, it's going to happen. Now, all along since Nagelsmann has rolled out this four-triple-two we've talked about the necessity of it that nagelsman is building a system and a formation around the talent that he has on the team and that's a very smart thing for him to do why force something that's not quite there if you don't believe that you have a real target man number 9 why force the issue um but what we're seeing of late and it was you know really thrust together because of injuries and availability and illnesses we're seeing a little bit more of that 4-2-3-1 setup. We're seeing Eric Maxim chubo moting being the focal point of it and doing doing exceptionally well. And Like I said earlier, I mean, this was a guy who I think many people didn't really think was going to get much playing time in all this year. Now all of a sudden he's a goal-scoring machine. And if you've followed Chubo's career, you know that he has always had the talent to put the ball in the net. Uh, he's been in some unfortunate Roster situations, particularly being stuck behind Robert Lewandowski, like who's going to beat that guy out of a job? But Chupo, I, you know, he has that talent. Can he do it on a consistent basis? Can he do it on the biggest of stages all the time consistently? I, I don't know. I'm not saying Chupo is the man, he's the the future of the striker position. I'm not saying that at all. He, he's a little bit uh maybe too long in the tooth for that kind of role right now but chupo is taking advantage of this situation but i think what he is really magnified is that the knocklesman system with these particular players is set up to work really really well in a 4231 if he has a good striker sadio mane has shown that he's a little more comfortable out there on the wing than he is operating in a more central position uh you know when we've seen Serge Gnabry playing in in a 4231 setup like we did against uh FC Barcelona we we were seeing a player who looks a little bit more free a little bit more creative and we know that Gnabry has said in the past he'd like to play a little bit more of a central role but i don't think he's as good centrally as he is out wide uh you know and of course when we have these discussions and we talk about a 4231 you know, we talk about what happens to players like Jamal Musiala or Kingsley Coman or Leroy Sané when you have Mane and Gnabry and you have Chupo starting as a striker. What happens to Thomas Muller? I mean, you know, our guy, Marcus Iridol, if you listen to the Minds Preview podcast that he did, you know, he's already predicting that Musiala is going to usurp Thomas Muller's starting role at some point this season. and And he could be right. And I know that is blasphemy, as Marcus said, and he'll have the whole hashtag Muller Mafia chasing him down with torches and pitchforks. But if you think about it and you think about the way that the offense and the attack has been operating of late, they do look a little better in the 4-2-3-1. They do look a little more sure of themselves. The problem is with the abundance of talent that, that Nagelsmann has available, the four triple two did allow him to use more of that, while pushing a player like Chupo to the bench, and to be able to use Musiala and Muller together. Because quite frankly, if you're looking at Bayern's top eleven, regardless of position, you're probably having Musiala and Muller in that mix. So you want to get them together. You know, I've been a big proponent of using Musiala as a wing, but even if you tried to do that in a four-two-three-one this season. You'd still be running into the Mane, Sané, Coman, Gnabry issue. So for this year, I still think that Nagelsmann is going to lean on that four triple two as much as he can, just to help keep the roster happy, just to help get those players time and not have to worry about things like alienating Thomas Müller or Jamal Musiala or Leroy Sané. The four triple two does allow him. to to maneuver those things a little better and keep players happy and and use more of those high-priced, big-ego players that he has in the attack. In the end, though, I still think this is a 4-2-3-1 team. And and I'm not like the die-hard 4-2-3-1 guy. I do like the formation, but I always, as I've said many, many times on this show, I believe the coach needs to be able to pick his formation to help pick his players to help or to really develop his own strategy for a particular roster and then run with it. And if he fails, he fails on his own accord. And I believe that with Nogglesman, he's doing that with the four triple two. I think he knows it's a short-term solution for this particular roster. And I do think if Byron goes out and they get a true number nine next summer, that the four triple two will go away. <laughs> it will be like the Dodo and it will never be seen again. I just think right now, Nogglesman knows when he needs. He knows he needs to keep certain players on this, this roster engaged and happy. And I think that the 4222 will allow him to do that. But in the end, next season, later this season, whenever it happens, we're going to see that 4231 come back and be the standard formation of Bayern Munich. The fourth thing I learned this week is that there's a pretty crazy rumor about Ilkay Gundawan being pursued by Bayern munich and and i for the life of me when i saw this and this is not the first time that we've seen this rumor come up i i didn't know how to take it because i look at Gundogan, and and he is a fine player for manchester city he does a lot of things really really well he's going to be an asset for germany during this world cup i don't doubt any of that but Where he would fit at a place like Bayern Munich is just crazy. And what we saw was Matteo Moretto, or or Relevo, 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 I don't know how that is pronounced, but whatever that outlet is, uh, Matteo Moretto was reporting that Bayern Munich had already made first contacts with Gundogan. Paris Saint-Germain was also um, one of the clubs that was involved with the talks. Juventus is also interested. Of course, Man City is is his current club and would like to re-up him as well. Pep Guardiola, as we know, as he said many a times, uh, is a big fan of, of Ilkay Gundogan. But Christian Falk of sports of Sportbill did chime in with his big flex of the week, where he said it was not true. Byron is not interested in Ilkay Gundogan. So you can say what you want about Matteo Moreto or Falk. Um, I think Falk is probably right on this. I I I don't discount the initial report only because I do think Bayern Munich would kick the tires. Like, well, what would it look like? What would you want? What would you want for pay? Like those kind of things. Very high-level exploration. Like, what would you what would your expectations of a role be? Because if you could get Ilkai Gundawad to come in and be a sub at a reasonable price and be a depth player? Yeah, who the hell wouldn't want that? I don't think at his age, though, and I think Gundogan is 32, uh, that you're not going to see Gundogan quite ready to cede his position as a starting-level player. Even if at Man City that would be very tough for him, I think that he knows he still has a, a, a lot to offer on the pitch, and it might not be at a club at the level of Man City or even Bayern Munich. So I do think he might explore some options, but in the end, if Gundogan decides to move on, I would have a feeling that it would be at a place where he would be a starter and not to a club like Bayern or not to a club like Real Madrid or somewhere like that. Uh, Juventus, I guess, depending on how they feel about the particular midfield options on any day of the week, he could, he could potentially be a starter, but I think when Gundogan sits down and he examines his situation, he'll just have to make the call on whether he wants to have a starting role or he wants to be comfortable, be a, a bench player, maybe even being groomed to be a future manager at Man City because he would get a certainly get a lot of experience uh, as an apprentice there uh, under Pep because if he was going to take a bench role, there's no doubt that he would be absorbing what Pep is doing as a manager and not just in that player-manager relationship. But I think Gundogan would be able to really look at the overall big picture, how Pep runs his programs, what his plans are, things like that. So for Gundogan, I I don't see a move to Bayern Munich, even if there are reports out there. I, I do kind of feel like he'll in the end end up with Man City. But hey, if he wants to start, if he wants to have an important role, maybe he'll seek out a different place. We we have seen him link to some clubs in the in the Turkish league where I think he probably, well, not probably, he definitely would start. So maybe that's something that interests him as well. But uh, it'll be something to keep an eye on, but I, I don't think it's anything quite so serious between Bayern Munich and Ilkay Gundogan, uh, at least at this stage. The fifth and final thing that I learned this week is that I I think I learned that Robert Lewandowski might be having some regrets about his move to FC Barcelona. Now, listen, Lewandowski is a very proud person. I don't think that he would admit regretting anything. But I do think deep down when he has to go through a game like he did in the Champions League against Bayern Munich, and he has to see his old club not just surviving without him, but really thriving – it's got to sting a little bit because Lewandowski, for for whatever you feel about him, he went from playing on a team that has very, very good players to going to Barcelona where he's on a, a roster that is supposed to be filled with good players, but they're really only good players by description at this point. They're not really proving it on the field. I mean, we we've seen players there, like Usman Dembele, wow, fans, occasionally, but not consistently. We've seen Pedri and Gavi and all the young talent there, right? But what are they really doing? Are they really excelling? Are they really any better than Jamal Musiala? I don't think so. There's just a lot of hype there and not a lot of substance. And I think the results bear that. FC Barcelona should not be eliminated in the group stage from the Champions League. But here we are, and they didn't make it out. And, you know, as much as a lot of people are probably ecstatic about that, I think Lewandowski is probably hurting down, deep down. I mean, right now at this stage, missing out on advancing to the knockout rounds, it's not helping Lewandowski's ultimate goal of getting a Ballon d'Or. I mean, we know that that was a... Big, big factor in him moving there. He wanted to be on the stage at a club that would get the attention that he needs to win that award. So, barring any type of miracle run by Poland at the World Cup, I cannot see how Lewandowski's going to make that happen. This Barca squad has talent on paper, but they just lack complete substance. I feel kind of bad for him because I think he's too good of a player to have to go out like this. And it's not saying that the project at FC Barcelona is, is not redeemable. It certainly is. I mean, maybe not this season, but Lewandowski's not getting any younger. And I do wonder if he if he sat back after that match and thought to himself, man, I really effed up. I should have left my pride at the door, maybe taken a little less money. And I could have wrote out the final real productive years of my career, playing on a great team where I could be the focal point and score a hell of a lot of goals, rather than being on an okay team for with a with a bunch of players who were supposed to be good, you know, still scoring a lot but not really getting that attention that I crave so so much. So Lewandowski, ah, it's really unfortunate to see him go through this. And I know some of you don't care, and some of you. Quite frankly, we're sick of his act by the end at Bayern Munich. And we're happy to see him go. But I I think that the team could be elevated even more if he was still on it. And it's a shame to watch a player as good as he was, someone who's had to work as hard as he has in his career to get where he's gotten, to have to deal with that mess that's there. And it is a mess. And I'm not trying to pick on FC Barcelona, but all of the financial strings they've pulled, all of the nonsense – you know, trying to force Frankie De Jong out just so they can save on his salary, all of that. Like, who needs that? What great player needs to be in that environment? None. None of them do. And that's what pains me about the Lewandowski decision. And I'm sure deep down, he's probably feeling the sting as well. The last thing we're going to talk about this week, and how could we not talk about it? This is, aside of Bayern Munich, this is the thing that has generated the most buzz on our site in a long time, and is the House of the Dragon. So we did see the season finale. And I, I want to start out by saying that as someone who didn't read the books, I, I was able to take in this season and just absorb it for the TV element, the TV story, without really having to know much about the background. Now, I did know a little bit because – As you're watching Game of Thrones and sometimes you might have a question, you look it up because that's what we do in this day and age, right? So I did learn a little bit about this story, but not the real finer points. So I was able to watch this, watch the characters develop, watch the storyline evolve and enjoy it and not be bothered by anything. But as the season went on, we did start to see some rumblings about things not quite matching up to the book and having... Adverse effects on the storyline. So, naturally, when there's something like this that comes up, I respect the opinion of my guy, Philip Quinn, who was detailing some of the subtle differences between, and some of these are not even subtle, between the book and the show. And he was explaining to me why he thought that some of the changes made in the plot, which mostly involved the intentions of some of the characters, why they were not as effective of what was done in the book. And it makes sense. And it made me actually appreciate the fact that I had not read the book because I'm one of these people that once I I read something originally, right? If I read a book and I get the original plot line and I get the story and all the finer details and elements of it, and I like it, it pains me to watch it change. So I understand why Phil and probably a lot of other people were not super happy with how everything played out in the season and especially in the finale. So I totally get that, but I felt like I should preface everything I'm going to say by saying I didn't read the book and I only went by the TV viewership and, and, and tried to experience it that way. And I'm glad that I did because I certainly know I would have probably been more annoyed than Phil was. (laughs) So, So just wanted to share that. But the crazy thing about house of the dragon is that I thought how Game of Thrones ended wh- and how poorly it was written and how poorly the story evolved over its last couple of seasons would have turned so many people off that they would have shut down. Because I was one of those people. I was ready to not engage in the Game of Thrones universe ever again because I was so pissed. I was just irate about how it ended I just hated the rushed nature of it, how the storyline started to make no sense, the time hops, everything. It was just stupid to me. He took a great, great thing, and he took the luster off of it. But people were in on House of the Dragon, including me. I came back. I am Charlie Brown with the football. I came back. 9.3 million people in the U.S. watched House of the Dragon. Now that's crazy because there were big games in the NFL and Major League Baseball that night. So think about it: you're using, losing some of those major markets, New York, Houston, and, and MLB. Like you, you, those are big markets in the U.S. Here, so it goes to show that even though Game of Thrones was royally messed up at the end, the people are so starved for good content that they came back in droves to House of the Dragon because. I think a lot of people were like me in the end. I started to think about all of those good things about Game of Thrones and started to try and ignore all of those bad things. But I, I was very pleased with what I saw. Not everything was great on the season, but in particular with the finale, we did start to see how this Greens versus Blacks rivalry is really starting to to shape up. Um, of course, there was uh some controversial stuff there was a really disturbing scene now i'm one of these you know i'm a weirdo right so you know the, the miracle of life video that you see in school when you're in like sixth grade or whatever that made me queasy and uh very queasy ever since about childbirth. <laughs> so that long and extended stillborn child scene childbirth scene uh with, with queen renera uh, that was so painful for me. To, I had to like look away and turn the volume down because I, I'm just a wuss about that kind of thing. Uh, so I did not enjoy that. That was one of the most uh, disturbing parts of all the disturbing things we see in the show. That was one of the most disturbing parts for me. A couple of the things that I really did like about this particular episode the map table lighting up I found to be very cool and I was wondering why they didn't explore that in Game of Thrones a couple of hundred year late years later or whatever, why they didn't try that out. Um, I especially liked Prince Daemon or I don't know if he's even King Daemon or King Regent. I have no idea how that works, but I did like him singing in Old Valerian to the unclaimed dragon who I believe is Vermi- Vermithor. And I, I found that to be, very, very cool, because of course we know that these dragons are weapons of mass destruction, and that claiming uh, these either feral or unclaimed dragons and getting them over to your side is a is a huge advantage. So it was pretty cool to see how Damon was going to try and lure this dragon to be part of for lack of a better term, his team. Uh, really, the ultimate scene in the final. Really big conflict of the episode was when we got to see, and I believe it was Prince Jusaris, uh, take his dragon, which I believe was Arax, to the Baratheons in Storm's End to try and gain the banners of the Baratheons uh, for the Blacks to be able to go to war against the Greens. And of course when Joceros gets there he finds that Prince Amond is already there and the first thing that we see is that huge ass dragon Vhagar. And at that point Joceros really needed to, uh, he needed to turn around. Uh, it's really like when you see that big dragon you, you really need to you need to to, to uh, to get out. And I'm sorry if I keep saying Geserus, I believe it was a Valerian who went. So I apologize for misspeaking there. Um but either way, it was uh very interesting to see Luceris make that trip to the Baratheons and to be able to walk in and you see that instant conflict between Luceris and prince Amond and Amond, of course wanted to get revenge for his eye being plucked out by his cousins so it it was it was very uh interesting to me that we saw that conflict and how uh boris baratheon had had kind of snuffed it out because he did not want that uh (laughs) that green and i guess it would be at that point green on black crime happening in his, in his house, for lack of a better term. So um, to see Luceris then decide to take off, you knew something bad was going to happen because he left. And this is, again, one of those weird time hops in the show. Somehow Aemond got to his dragon and was able to get in the air before uh, Luceris was able to, to get onto his dragon. So again, didn't make any sense. Uh, really, it, it, that part was kind of stupid, but anyway, Lucerys takes his uh dragon and he starts to try and get back to Dragonstone. But of course, Amond and Vagar start to F with him. Uh, <laughs> and from the way it was presented, and I think this is one of the main plot lines that got Phil a little riled up was um, the way it was presented on the show was that Amon did not have the intention to to really kill Luceris. And uh of course that's what happened. Um Amon in the end was it was portrayed that he could not control Vagar after Arax or Arax uh of course hit him with fire. Uh so as all of this was going on there was a little bit of a chase we did see that first Luceris lost control of arax who felt threatened and eventually spit fire at Vhagar, which of course pissed off the bigger dragon <laughs> so in the end what we do see is Vagar killing both arax and luceris and that of course will now be the catalyst for season two where it seems like all hell is going to break loose so uh cutting all that long-winded description of that that final scene out there or that final conflict we now see how this is all going to take off and what i think we're going to be presented with a lot in season two and depending how on how many seasons this story is going to be told in we're going to see a lot of big dragon fights we are going to see a lot of now i'm sure political posturing and a lot more development in char- in terms of character development for these main characters it is going to be very interesting to see not the plot line for me, but how the writers and the story run or the showrunners can keep this story going, can keep the plot moving forward, giving everyone those deep, really deep cuts into what's going on with the characters, all those finer details that we love so much about Game of Thrones and and all of that, how how they can keep those little nuggets coming in while keeping the timeline and the plot line moving forward at a good pace as we've seen with Game of Thrones and as we've even seen in House of the Dragon, it has been uneven. We've seen times where it rushes too much. We've seen times where it's been too slow. And and for me, when it's been too slow, it hasn't been too slow in the way that we're getting all of those finer details and all of those little things that we loved about Game of Thrones. We're not getting those. We're just getting slow. But in the end, I will tell you, I was a big fan of the season. I liked what I saw. I'm staying engaged with it. So it was a big win for me because I went in this thinking it was going to be messed up and it would suck, but it did not. So I'm really happy about it. I feel like I spent my time well. So, uh, and again, I apologize for getting just Saris and Lucaris mixed up. There's too many Sarises around. Wait until I start having to, to go with more and more dragons here. It was tough enough to say Arax, So, uh, whatever, I'll have to hone myself, uh, hone those Valerian terms up, um, get them all straight. So uh appreciate uh you bearing with me through that. Anyway, I uh, just want to say thanks again for listening. Please enjoy the Minds Byron matchup this weekend should be a lot of fun. Of course this is a precursor to their upcoming day of bay Pokal match where the two teams will square off again. So uh it'll be a good little uh preview for that Pokal match and I think we'll see a, a pretty good one. Iron looks to be very strong and I think they will come out and show that they are. So as always, you can get me at the barrel blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB works. You can get, I need no name at B F W I N N N. You can get Tom at Tommy Adam 71 and do me a favor, check out the minds podcast preview. Marcus did a really good job on that. Of course, like Marcus is like this, the smooth operator of the B F W crew he's kind of in and out you might not hear from him for a while, but he comes in with his deep voice and you know, his movie star looks and all that crap where the rest of us are like, you know, <laughs> normal dudes, I guess. I don't know. But uh, except for, I guess I shouldn't say that. Cause Samron is, is not a normal dude. Samron's great. Uh, she's way better than the rest of us. And she's also not a dude. So, um, you know, Marcus did a great job with that filling in for Samarin. So please check it out. Uh, and you should always check out all of our podcasters. They all do such a fantastic job. Check out the site as well. We'll have all of the great game coverage and just all of the Byron and German news coverage, uh, including a, a neat little tidbit that we covered on Thursday about Bayer Leverkusen's upcoming visit to St. Louis. You should also check that out because if you were in that area, you were in you know, Missouri or, or within driving distance and you get a chance to see a real Bundesliga team, you should absolutely go. I saw Eintracht Frankfurt at Frankfurt when they were in Philly, and I loved every second of it. So if you're in the heartland of the United States, you get a chance to go to St. Louis over the summer, you definitely should do it. Anyway, have a great weekend. Uh, I'm going to enjoy it. Have a couple of beers on me, and we will see you next time.